Thinking about the most important questions of our lives requires a little training to do really well. And today's guest, Dr. Sam Nicholson, has a passion for teaching and some great reasons why our kids need to study philosophy. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host. Really happy to welcome Dr. Sam Nicholson to talk about why our kids need to study philosophy. And Dr. Nicholson earned his BA in philosophy at Hillsdale College, his MA from Western Michigan University, and his PhD from the University of Virginia. He's published in several peer-reviewed articles and has taught at the university level for over 10 years. He currently teaches philosophy and logic for homeschool connections. We are so lucky to have him. And he works maintenance and facilities at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's an Aristotelian Thomist and a convert to Catholicism, and his areas of scholarly interest are the philosophy of science, philosophy of language and mind, and 20th century analytic philosophy. You can find Dr. Nicholson at scn8v at virginia.edu, and that's in our show notes, so no worries if you didn't quite catch that. And we'll also have links to Dr. Nicholson's courses at Homeschool Connections so you can meet him, watch his introduction video, get to know him a little bit, to teach his great courses. Welcome, Dr. Nicholson, to the program. Hi. Hey, good Thanks to have you. <laughs> You're most welcome. Step us into, because a lot of us didn't study philosophy, and so many of our new homeschoolers are really kind of trying to get a beat on what's most important here. What is philosophy? Why is this so important? Yeah, so I think that if, if, you, if you've never taken it, uh, you know, in a systematic way, we need to set aside to start with some of our preconceived ideas about what philosophy is. Because there's a colloquial usage of philosophy that means something like a personal credo. So you mean you meet people and they might say, well, my philosophy is that I'm a realist about things or that I'm a pessimist about things. And what they mean there is something like a personal point of view or a personal way in which they see things. And philosophy does involve a way of seeing things, but it's not something that is merely private and it's not merely uh, a matter of opinion. And if we look at it from the standpoint of the you know, historical tradition in philosophy, it's actually a science, as most people understood it. It's not a natural science, the way that we would talk about physics or chemistry, say. I mean, there are no experiments that philosophers do. It's not based upon the accumulation of data. But it is nevertheless a systematic form of inquiry that applies rational argumentation and dialectical reason to try to uncover certain basic facts about reality. And so uh, philosophers might concern themselves with things such as the nature and existence of God. In what ways can we know God just using our intellects? What is the nature of moral goodness or virtue? What kind of political order is best? And the great tradition in philosophy has always taken it that these questions are not merely matters of opinion, um, but that we can apply reason, we can apply logic, and we can use standards of evidence 
to gain clarity and insight into these matters. And uh, this is particularly important when we live in a culture like ours, where we're probably going to be a little bit out of step with some of the mainstream opinions. And some of that out of stepness, we might say, uh, stems from the fact that to a certain degree as a practicing Catholic, you are going to at least implicitly hold philosophical beliefs that are at odds with those in your ambient culture. And philosophy can shed some light on that and give you a little bit of clarity into why it is that we believe what we believe and uh, why is it that uh, people in the past have thought differently than they do now? Yeah, I feel like what you're talking about is getting our brains to see things, to examine things, to draw conclusions about things in a really clear way. And when we can think about things clearly, we can communicate those things more clearly, we can stand in them more clearly as a people. That it's not just a bunch of kind of vague, you know, values or, you know, beliefs maybe that haven't been fully tested. A philosophical mind has great clarity, doesn't it? I'm really fond of this quote by G.K. Chesterton where he describes philosophy as thought that has been thought through. And then he <laughs> adds to that that our alternatives are either thought that has been thought through or thought that hasn't been thought through. And so he says that those who would denigrate philosophy are simply consigning themselves to rely upon thoughts which have not been thought through. Which seems to be kind of the cornerstone of our culture these days, just a lot of knee-jerk, um, kind of reactionary sloganeering going on. It's a little frightening. Um, yeah, it, it, it might not be easy to engage a lot of the culture and philosophical conversation, but it does give us that clarity. It also can give us clarity, Dr. Nicholson, about our faith itself, right? What's that relationship with the church and philosophy? Well, the church has always embraced philosophy in, in, in the mainstream of you know, the, the, the Catholic tradition. And there, there was a debate in the early church about whether or not philosophy was, was proper uh, as a tool to explore the faith and, and to make clear our theological inheritance. And the church, you know, decisively uh, came down on the side of, yes, it is okay to use philosophical reason to try to clarify our concepts of God and understand uh, revelation and to make clear what we have gotten in the deposit of faith. And without philosophy, for example, it is unlikely that we would have gotten the rich inheritance that we have from figures such as St. Augustine or St. Aqu Thomas Aquinas or St. Ambrose, because in order to truly understand these men and their thought, um, you also have to understand some of their philosophical background, and that will mean studying figures like Plotinus in the case of St. Augustine or Aristotle in the case of St. Thomas Aquinas. So uh, the, the, the development of Catholic doctrine has always had a close symbiosis with the philosophical tradition from outside of religion proper, and we need to acknowledge that uh, to, to, to disregard philosophy altogether is not to think with the mind of the church. It's, it's really to adopt a kind of anti-intellectual stance that you, you might find in some uh, precincts of Protestant fundamentalism, but is really very alien to, to the Catholic mind. 
Yeah, one of the things that I love about the church is the rich intellectual tradition, that there's really something for everyone. You know, we can we can absolutely have our moments of just kind of personal contact with the Holy Spirit and uh, and we can sing incredible songs of praise and hear classical music and all of that and the, the kind of smells and bells sensory experience of the faith that's so transcendent and takes us beyond ourselves. But this intellectual grounding where we can drop anchor in really clear thought and understanding, as you said, the basis for Augustine and Ambrose and, and Aquinas what was it they were standing on that made their thoughts so clear? And, and so it's great to have somebody like you, have a real scholar, be able to unpack that for us. Well, one very common distinction that's made is that between natural and revealed theology. And so the church has always acknowledged that there are some things that we can know about God just using our unaided human intellect so that while we may have been cognitively damaged by our fallenness we were not completely left in the dark and so we can look to the writings of people like aristotle or plato or some of the other ancient greek philosophers i mean the neoplatonist uh, plotinus i mentioned earlier and we can see that they had genuine insights into uh, the nature of God in some respects. Now, these insights are, of course, going to fall short of what we enjoy through revelation, right? We're not going to be able to reason our way to the claim, for example, that God is a trinity of persons. But there are some things that we can know. We can know that God exists, that he is one, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. And these are things that can be demonstrated just through the use of philosophical reason. And so if you look at, for example, um, Aquinas's corpus of thought, uh, what you're going to find is that he adopts this Aristotelian framework uh, from an ancient pagan Greek philosopher, and he in certain ways perfects it by adding to it what he has gleaned from the deposit of faith, and that serves both as a corrective to some of the claims that Aristotle makes, but it also becomes clear that uh, Aristotle's writings are not something to be dismissed entirely, but rather they're a very fecund source of insights that can be used to shed light on the truths of faith. It's so lovely, isn't it, to think that there are things that you can, you can argue out, you can, you can probe and, and examine that reveals so much. There's this false idea out there in the world that people of faith are irrational. And yet, some of the, our greatest saints showed us what a gift our rational minds are, as small as they are compared to the mind of God. He has made us so that we may know him. Yeah, that, that's correct. And part of it, too, is that without an, a, 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 hist, a rich grounding in the history of philosophy, it's very difficult to appreciate just how well articulated and worked out the classical Christian, uh, and particularly Catholic, view of the world is. And I would go so far as to say that it is uh, rationally superior to what succeeded it in the Western world, that there was a fully 
articulated notion of the basic structure of reality, which put God at the forefront. And from this, there flowed a very rich moral conception of, of, of human nature. And from this, the political order, and it was all well articulated into a single coherent set of views. I don't want to say that it was one monolithic system because it was not. That would be a, an anachronistic way of looking at it. But there were some common themes that had been developed that were very, very, very rich and powerful and deep. And one can look at modern philosophy, which has emerged in its wake, which to varying degrees displaces theology entirely. Uh, and you can see that it really is impoverished. It does not have the same ability to give a convincing account of morality. It does not have a convincing account of human nature. Uh, it doesn't even do a particularly good job explaining how it is that we can know things about the objective world. And that's why skepticism has been such a deeply ingrained feature of our modern world. And uh, we tend to think that because this came later that it must somehow be better or that it must have uh, been formed on the basis of information that was not available to earlier generations. And this is simply a misconception. And uh, many of the philosophical claims that are central to the Christian worldview were never refuted so much as they were simply uh, ignored, discarded, and displaced by a successor worldview uh, that never rivaled it in terms of its comprehensiveness or depth. I almost feel encouraged to hear you say that because in my mind I hear the kind of flimsy modern philosophy results in skepticism. It doesn't result in conviction. And, and, and I think, um, was it Chesterton who also said, it's not that Christianity has been rejected, it's that it's been misunderstood. And so we have this sense, as you described, that it has not been refuted. It's just like, it's almost like we're speaking completely different languages. And it gets me excited to think that if our generation of homeschooled families trains ourselves and our children to think philosophically, what a difference that injection of light and truth and beauty and goodness can have, that ripple effect that, of course, God would magnify by grace. For these ideas to slowly become reenculturated, it's going to take uh, a concerted multi-layer effort because obviously not everyone is going to have the interest or aptitude to do scholarly philosophy, um, but not everyone needs to. So, uh, for example, someone who is a faithful and practicing Catholic who strives to live according to the teachings of the church and does a good job, you know, educating themselves and being self-catechized in uh, the traditional teachings of the church is to a certain degree going to live out an applied version of the philosophy that we've just alluded to. And it's going to be at an intuitive and sort of unarticulated way, but it is nevertheless going to be the practical result of thinking in this way. And it takes all levels of this. So we need people to do the scholarly heavy lifting and to really just kind of rearticulate what, we, what we've always known, you know, because so much of it has simply been displaced or waylaid in recent generations. But a lot of it is just going to be people 
who are influenced by these ideas who do things like sculpt or write or do poetry or do home economics and crafts and that kind of thing so that you really have a culture that bears fruit on the basis of the ideas that it embodies and uh, really the, the robust real test of whether or not you have a philosophy that is vital and living is what does it inspire people to do and what kind of culture does it create when you have groups of people who cooperate and organize their lives on the basis of this philosophy uh, and judged by that standard we can see that there's room for people of all walks of life to participate in the reconstruction of this culture and we can also just see made manifest uh, I would say it's superiority to what uh, displaced it, especially when we look around at some of the, the chaos and uh, dysfunction that we see in the current postmodern environment that we live in. Oh, yeah, I love what you said about living out a, an authentic, well-catechized faith being essentially an applied philosophy, that it sets in motion the, the fruits of that long tradition of the scholarly philosophy. Now, I'm sure you've got people really intrigued. So for people like me who don't have formal training in philosophy and don't have the bandwidth to do the deeper scholarly work, how do we stand on the shoulders of giants and start to bring this to our children and our grandchildren? There are a lot of resources available that you can, that you can use. So um, I would recommend looking at some popular introductions to figures like St. Thomas Aquinas. So there are many, many, many good very readable introductions to Aquinas. Uh, if you just, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, firing into firing a shotgun into a crowd. You're going to hit something if you look through any, you know, catalog from a major Catholic publisher. There are also some really good resources. One is done by the Dominican Institute, um, and it's called Aquinas 101. It's a set of very well presented and clearly articulated videos that are by the Dominicans up in up in DC, the Eastern province. And what they'll do is they will take some idea or concept like angels or divine providence or uh, the knowability of God, and they'll compress it into a eight to 12 minute long video which is geared towards an intelligent layperson or a curious layperson with no prior background in philosophy so that you can just pick it up and uh, you will get something out of it regardless of what your background is. I would also recommend some of the popular writings of people like um, Edward Fazer. Um, Peter Kreft has some good very readable introductions to uh, various philosophical ideas as well as figures like Aquinas. And really, you can educate yourself and go a long way toward uh, a, 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 a good understanding of this without having to have a background in, in high-level philosophy. And I would also encourage particularly Catholic parents and uh, laypersons to look into some of the greats of ancient philosophy outside the church. So I would, I would encourage people to look at people like Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, some of the ancient Greeks in particular. And I believe that what you will find there is something that can complement your understanding of theology. So of course you don't want to, you know, swallow it wholesale. You're going to want to, you know, be guided by what later Christian interpreters gleaned from them, people like the Augustine and Aquinas. 
but they can be profitable to read in their own right, and they can uh, deliver insights that will shed light on theological matters. Wonderful. Now, uh, step us into your courses at Homeschool Connections, because you do really well with our students, getting them excited and engaged in these topics. Describe what some of your courses and, and how they work. So right now I have, um, I guess I really have two types of course that I'm doing for Homeschool Connections. So one of them is logic. And so right now I've pieced together a four-part logic curriculum that, that spans two school years. Now each of these courses that I put together uh, can be taken as a standalone. So, so although I encourage people to take them all in, in, as a series, it's not really necessary to absorb it all at once. And this runs the entire gamut from just basic rhetoric and critical reasoning through traditional syllogistic logic, through inductive and more sort of probabilistic or scientific reasoning, to modern symbolic logic, which is very abstract and mathematics-like. And I think that there's, you know, a, a misconception that, that people shouldn't take this until they go to college, and I think that's completely wrong-headed. If people in high school can take chemistry and balance equations, or if they can take geometry or calculus, there's absolutely no reason why they cannot take logic. And uh, I think that that in and of itself is going to provide an inoculation against some of the more toxic ideas that are currently circulating in our culture. And moreover, it also supplies a very rigorous type of class. So really, it's, it's not a, a course where people are required to come up with anything novel or even do a lot of, um, you know, creative thinking about philosophy or engagement with these, you know, abstract texts. It's really pretty straightforward, and a lot of it can be graded just like a math exam. You either get it or you don't. And so many people who are not necessarily attracted to philosophy itself, I think, can benefit from studying logic. And of course, I think it's necessary for as many people as possible to get some kind of background in logic. So that's one set of classes that I teach. Uh, the other ones are topical. And again, I try to do it with an eye towards uh, bringing in some of the insights from the philosophical tradition in a way that's both relevant but not trendy, so that it deals with you know classical readings in philosophy, but we bring it to bear on some one topic. So an example might be uh, one of them's called Virtue and Vice for Catholics, and so what we do is we look at some of the ancient pagan philosophers in their uh, discussions of the moral life. So we look at uh, Aristotle, Plato, the Stoics, the Epicureans. And one of the things that we can see here is how many of these philosophers come up with ideas that anticipate in a very crude and imperfect way ideas that can only really be fully understood through the light of faith, but yet they still had an inkling of it. And we can see how one could simply reason one's way to some of these conclusions, or at least you know get yourself reasonably close to them. And we can also see how uh, a lot of what seemed to be the more uh, radical and, you know, uh, destructive ideas of our present culture uh, have also been anticipated by people, that there is truly nothing new under the sun. So we can read the writings of someone like Epicurus, who's a hedonist, uh, a materialist, who doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul, 
and we can see echoes of his thinking uh, at large today. And we can start to see that, no, we are not living in unique times from the standpoint of human reasoning. While things seem to be completely off the rails, we can see that many of the ideas that drive people and drive our current culture have always been around, uh, that people have always had these kinds of ideas. And we can see, you know, what is it that would lead someone to these conclusions? And in what ways were they argued against in their own day? Um, so, so, so that's the second type of class that I offer. Another one is not about moral philosophy, but it's called theories of knowledge. And so we look at, again, with a heavy uh, focus on some of the ancient philosophers, uh, claims about what it is that we can know, how we know it. We can see, for example, that, um, again, many modern ideas were already anticipated by people in the ancient world, like Sextus Empiricus and others. And uh, so we look at that and some of the dialectics uh, that we find there are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. So one of the things that I like to show people is that there's an argument for a kind of subjectivism that refuses to distinguish between what I think and what's true. And there is an absolutely devastating refutation of this uh, type of thinking that is present in the writings of Plato. And it's just as devastating today as it was in its own day. And that pretty much puts paid to that, that notion once and for all time. Um, but it's interesting to find it buried back there in the writings of Plato 2,500 some years ago. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not a scholar of the ancients, but even just reading things as recent as Lewis and, and Chesterton, people like that, um, it's possible to see that the, the things that come up in philosophical circles, the arguments that are had from generation to generation bear similarities and have common threads. And as you said, you can help to inoculate your children, such a great word, against this really confusing, we know that the devil is the father of confusion and God is, is all about clarity and truth and, and all of that. So when we encounter a confused culture, that our own identities are in confusion in the culture, what a great gift to give our children to be able to recognize the things that really don't make any sense. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the devil and the diabolical, and I think that's actually uh, something that has to be talked about. Um, because because our believing in this is not optional for us. And I think it's uh, increasingly clear. I mean, there, there's enough information that we can see from, you know, contemporary testimony as well as the witness of the historical tradition that these things are not metaphors. These things are not, you know, mere forces or ideas or systems, but these are real, you know, disembodied persons and they interact with us and we are continually involved in kind of low grade low intensity spiritual warfare, which is primarily a battle for our intellect and for our will. And we can see that one of the ways in which the diabolic operates is through confusion, relabeling things, taking words and distorting their meanings, rationalizing things that we know to be wrong, swapping the labels on terms like a good and evil. And again, a philosophical background uh, will, to a certain degree, confer protection against this. It's not a supernatural protection like you would have from being in a state of grace or through living a sacramental life, but it is nevertheless a cognitive 
uh, protection against the bewitching of your intellect. And so we can see very beautifully encapsulated in the tale in Eden, what is it that the serpent does? He questions what God had said and attaches a different meaning to it. He says, well, you will not die. And of course, there, we're talking about two different forms of death. There is bodily death and there is spiritual death. And we can see that that kind of equivocation comes up very, very frequently. And you can read some of the uh, spiritual writings of, of people like Ignatius or um, Scopoli or some of these others who have talked about uh, spiritual warfare and this battle over the intellect and the will and how this is something that figures into this, this bewitching of the intellect through the use of semantic distortion and relabeling and uh, ambiguity, exploiting ambiguities. And we can see that people in our culture do this as well. It's a way of, it's a peculiar way of taking advantage of someone and manipulating them intellectually. And uh, fortunately, the clarity of you know, being clear about terms and having some philosophical background can provide protection against it. Yeah, I got so many images were running through my mind as you were talking about the the Garden of Eden and and that whole conversation and the way things are. It's almost like long ago when my husband and I lived in New York City, we would see people doing those little shell games on the street and people would place bets or or pay money to to guess which, you know, which shell was covering the pea and there was all this sleight of hand. And there's this verbal sense of kind of, uh, you know, passing that pee around in a way that's so confusing that people end up at a, at a wrong conclusion. And I also thought, as you were describing it, of St. Michael, those images we have of him with the sword of truth, that flaming sword of truth, saying, that makes no sense, and going after Lucifer. It's, uh, I just really feel like this so relates to all the beautiful imagery of our faith and, and, and illuminates it, helps us to step into it and embrace it. Yeah, and, and, it, and it gives you a sense of the power of reason, not just as a, not just in the natural order, but in the supernatural. And, um, you know, there's that famous, you know, or I don't know what famous is the correct term for it, but we, 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 we hear this, this dramatic retelling of, of the story of St. Michael, where it's the, the idea itself that he gives voice to, who is like God? And it's simply that clarity of the truth spoken forcefully is sufficient to defeat the pretensions of the devil. And because it has to do with the natural law sovereignty that truth enjoys over error. Good and evil, if you go back and you can read uh, Augustine, and you can see that good and evil are not symmetrical ontologically. That what is evil is in, always in some sense a corruption of what is good and its existence is parasitic on what is good. And so there just is a kind of power that the truth has. And, you know, in the, in the natural order, we can think of this story about it. I believe it was Nicholas Ceausescu, the dictator in uh, Eastern Europe, the, in one of the former Soviet republics. And it was, his downfall was precipitated by someone just standing in a crowd and just shouting, liar. And it was all, and, and there's this, you know, dramatic retelling. Some of it may have become apocryphal now, but it's that when, when untruth is exposed, it just becomes robbed of its power. And there is really nothing more humiliating than, than to see a liar caught in their lies. And it does not matter how smart you are or how high your IQ is. 
you will look a fool as soon as you are caught in a lie. Yeah. Amen. And we have a whole lot of that going on these days in our culture. Um, Take us out with any final thoughts, Dr. Nicholson. Well, well, I would like to believe that I've piqued someone's interest um, in philosophy and gotten somebody, uh, you know, wanting to take one of my courses. Um, Short of that, I hope I've at least explained what it is that we do and to help people understand um, that this is actually an important discipline. So we live in an age where there's, I'm going to borrow a term that's been used by others where idea laundering takes place. And what (laughs) idea laundering is, is when you take some intellectually feeble or disreputable or politically motivated set of ideas and you try to lend them credibility by doing things like writing them up in a journal and publishing them or getting degrees in it. And there's a lot of just spurious, utterly vapid nonsense that has made a lot of people rich and made a lot of people that people have been able to parlay into very rich careers in academia and in government and other places. And what I would like to encourage people who are rightly skeptical about some of this stuff to do is to not apply that skepticism to philosophy. Philosophy is one of the ancient perennial central disciplines in learning and in classical humanities. And it is a a robust discipline that is integral to the world that we have inherited. And so I would encourage people to uh, bracket it. Don't view it as one of these uh, frou-frou nonsensical disciplines of which there are many nowadays. And also uh, don't be afraid of it. It may sound intimidating and highfalutin and like you, you need to be you know, three standard deviations above normal intelligence before you even think about trying to to approach it. And I would say, don't do that either. Find a good philosophy book. And if it's too difficult, then find another one. There are enough out there that try to make these ideas accessible and readable that you can uh, benefit from studying it. And just uh, if you need further proof, just look at how many doctors and saints of the church fruitfully engaged in it. and you can see that clearly there is something here and there is something that helps uh, us realize our God-given potential as intellectual creatures. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicholson. And um, be assured, listeners, that I will get proper spellings of these resources that have mentioned in the course of our conversation and anything else that Dr. Nicholson wants to add or recommend. We will get those in the show notes for you. So do take a look at all of that and how to get in touch with Dr. Nicholson and as well as to find his courses. Can't thank you enough. This has just been such an engaging and interesting conversation. Okay. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Everybody hold on for just another minute or two. We have a short feature coming right up. Hi, this is Dan Lozonis from EinsteinBlueprint.com. Today, I want to give you all you listeners another resource, probably the most unknown and underestimated resource there is that can hyper-accelerate your kids' vocational and entrepreneurial journeys. Guess what it is? You're listening to one right now. It's called a podcast. It's actually the whole library of audio content that is out there on this earth. This week, I was reminded how underutilized podcasts were while I was helping a single mom 
designed a customized homeschool curriculum for his 16-year-old daughter, who was recently pulled out of school. I strongly recommended a slate of specific podcasts for the young lady to consume, especially because it will help her bridge that critical gap between academics and the harsh but abundantly rich outside world she will momentarily be entering. Anyway, the educational power of podcasts, the benefits of audio learning, they have a long and rich history. Success gurus and business slash life coaches have been recommending learning by listening long before wireless Bluetooth earbuds. In fact, Sarah Blakely, the billionaire founder of Spanx, used to listen to cassette tapes of Wayne Dyer in her car while she was only a teenager. She listened to them on loop to the point where it tortured her high school friends, a few of whom are probably now wishing they paid a little more attention. My main business mentor, Dan Kennedy, along with Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, and so many others, have long since urged their students to capitalize on audio content by turning their cars into rolling universities. So podcasts are hardly a new resource or learning hack. However, just over the past handful of years, they've become even better and an even richer resource than before. No matter what topic, hobby, business, or whatever, today there is somebody on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or iHeartRadio yapping on a microphone about it. Of course, you know this because you're listening to this podcast and hopefully many strategically chosen others. But what about your kids? Remember, what's good for the geese is often even greater for the gander. After my son's two podcasts, my top recommendation would be How I Built This. It's a PBS production and mostly family-friendly. Essentially, it's an interview series where ultra-successful business people share their full stories from how they got their original business idea and how they overcame all their bumps, bruises, and obstacles on the way to success. Some of my favorite episodes include Sarah Blakely, of course, but also talks with the founders of Atari, of Melissa and Doug, the educational toy company, interviews with the founder of Kate Spade, and also the one with Stacy Brown, the founder of Chicken Salad Chick Franchise Restaurants. So again, if you're not assigning and using podcasts in your homeschool curriculum, if you're not pumping them through all those electronic devices that are umbilically attached to us, then you and your kids are missing out on a terrific, life-changing resource. So one more thing I want to mention about learning by listening. You see, it's not just about consuming content that might go in one ear and out the other. Listening to podcasts and audiobooks is what they call a secondary activity. That means you can listen while doing the dishes, your kids while building with Legos, or exercising. And because your body is in motion, there's a phenomenon at work that opens up more neural pathways in the brain. In other words, the content you listen to will burn into your brain at a deeper level. So the powerful stories in this wisdom gained will actually take up cranial real estate. It'll rewire your brain and echo in your kids' heads for some time. If you want your kids to avoid the soulless corporate grind, skip the nine to five, and become self-propelled entrepreneurs, then visit my 16-year-old's homeschooled son's website, kidsgetrich.com. There you'll find his free podcast and other helpful resources. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. 
and we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.